Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, I have a challenging discussion with Dr. Chris High, founder of Wealthcare Solutions. We talk about the issues of older age on decision-making and how that affects an individual's retirement. We go through data on aging and explore diminished mental capacity in detail. Advisors will learn what to look for in clients who may be suffering from cognitive decline or even Alzheimer's disease and what those advisors can do about it. Finally, we hear about the formation of Wealthcare Solutions and the data behind the firm. Welcome aboard, Chris. Thanks for having me, Fraser. Nice to be here. Oh, terrific. Let's dive right in. We all have run into situations where we're dealing with clients who are getting up there in years and they don't have their fastball anymore. Maybe paint a picture for us in terms of data, what that looks like. Yeah, unfortunately, the picture is not exactly rosy. So I think probably the, you know, maybe the biggest development of our lifetimes is the lengthening lifespans that we're hopefully all going to be able to experience. I mean, most of us are going to be living 10, 20, 30 years longer than our parents or grandparents. And, you know, obviously that's mostly good news. Living longer is generally thought of as a good thing, but there are some downsides to it. And, you know, the statistics really show how much really risk that many of us start to face when it comes to decision-making as we get older. There was a large study conducted at Harvard a few years ago now that attempted to estimate the peak age of financial decision-making. So the age at which we're best at making financial decisions, and they found that age to be 53, you know, not 63 or 73. And basically what they found is after 53 things, most importantly, that after 53 for the average person, the ability to make good financial decisions starts to tail off. And those data are supported by some other studies and just basic facts about dementia. You know, early Alzheimer's dementia can start as, you know, when you're 50s or even 40s. And basically, the frequency of dementia starts doubling every five years, starting at age 60, to the point where, you know, the average person, by the time they're in their 80s, they have a 50% chance or better of having dementia. One of the scary parts, I guess, is that for, you know, the the typical standard operating procedure that we're all used to is people retiring at, let's say, 65 and having to plan out another 20 to 25 years of lifespan. And at that point, you're making high stress and major decisions at a point when you haven't got everything at your disposal. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, you kind of have two curves going in different directions. The one curve is the one I just talked about with the peak age of financial decision making. Your capacity goes up and up and up. And by the time you reach your 50s, it starts to come down, where conversely, people in their 50s and 60s tend to have, you know, the most money they've ever had in their lives, you know, just at the time when they're increasingly less capable of making good financial decisions. I was going to say, on top of that, there's usually a big conversion for most people where they're transitioning from an income-based reality to a living off of assets-based reality. And that's a nice thing to graduate to, but it's also a source of a lot of stress. Combine that with the aging that you're describing, that, that could be a difficult recipe. Yeah. I mean, basically that process you're talking about is getting 
it's getting a lot harder. You know, again, when you think about parents and grandparents, many of them were lucky to live to 65. I never met my grandfather. He died when he was in his 50s. My father died when he was 70. And so the planning for retirement part, and, and, and almost nobody even, you know, worked past 65. Now we have a situation where a lot of people can and want to work past age 65. They're going to live again 10, 20, 30 years longer. So the whole process has gotten a lot more complex. What do you think about in terms of people who are hitting age 53 and beyond? And the statistics say that people are starting to lose a little bit of mental capacity, but they may not be able to see it themselves. What does diminished capacity look like? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there have been now in the last five or 10 years, more and more studies about decision-making capacity, particularly as it relates to financial decision-making capacity. I, in fact, helped design and lead a study at Mass General Hospital that was designed to try to better understand that. Again, so the good news and the bad news is one of the first skills that starts to go is the ability to make good financial decisions. So, for example, there was recently a study that found that people were making credit card errors, you know, up to six years prior to a diagnosis of dementia. So the financial decision-making, the types of decisions that require a lot of organization and planning, those tend to be some of the first ones to go. So that's a real red flag. And that's why, you know, that's something that adults and families should be on the lookout for. Because again, if you start making these financial errors, that can be a real red flag and a real warning sign that uh, things are starting to go south. So you want people to make decisions when they're at the top of their game or at least close to it, but oftentimes life intervenes and that's not quite so easy, or maybe it's difficult to involve other family members or advisors. What's your counsel to people when they see somebody who's starting to have some slips? How do you get that conversation going on on a very difficult topic? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of still a lot of stigma around mental illness in this country that makes these types of discussions more difficult. But there are are ways to start the discussion. I mean, and I'm fortunate to work with some really great psychiatrists up in the Boston area, and they've got some really good suggestions. I mean, one thing you don't want to do is say, hey, you know, you're you're messing up. It's obvious you, you got to do something, right? That approach almost never works. So the approach that tends to work is the one where you're showing empathy, you maybe even starting off by saying, hey, I know you're, you know, it's a difficult time for you. Things are getting more complex. So what you want to do is to have a, you know, a fairly low-key discussion where you're getting people to sort of think about what they're doing. So there are some questions, you know, like, you know, you know, wouldn't it be nice to get help? Wouldn't it be nice to make sure that you're, you know, making good decisions? So there are some ways you can do it, but you're right. It's a little tricky, but again, just show empathy, show understanding, show some compassion, and don't be directly confrontational. One area in the wealth management industry that seems to have a big gaping hole, as far as I can tell, is in the bookkeeping world. I have a lot of different people who have expressed interest in siphoning off the check writing function and the bill paying function to a third party to alleviate that 79-year-old or 90-year-old of something that it's definitely going to cause problems where they miss paying a credit card bill or they didn't pay the car insurance or something like that. How do you deal with that? And do you have any resources along that front that can help out? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I that I'd like to say is that 
especially as you get older, you want to try to build a team. You don't want to have to do all this stuff by yourself. And that team can include family members. It can include friends. It can and, and should include other professionals. So that's usually a very sort of basic approach that most people can take is if you're older, you know, you get your kids involved, make sure your spouse is involved, maybe get friends, get your advisor involved, get an accountant. I mean, I'm all, I'm all for that. But the bottom line is we say it's, it's complex and it's hard. So don't try to do this all by yourself. And another thing, even if you're, you know, if you're the son or the daughter, it frequently is the daughter of an older adult, one person, it could be a heavy burden on. And so Basically, you want to build a team. And there are some resources you can look to. If you really, if you don't feel like you have the family members or the friends, there are people called geriatric care managers. And that can be a really good research. Most of these, and I've used them, most of them are, you know, some combination of social workers or nurses, but this is what they do for a living. They help you organize the care around older adults. So, you know, if you're really, really stuck and you don't feel like you have the support system that you want, just, you know, Google geriatric care manager near me and go to them. And there's also some organizations, as you know, some local or national organizations like the Alzheimer's Association are very, very senior organizations in your community. I'd give them a call as well. From an elder abuse perspective, we see more and more where the phone rings and it's somebody trying to sell older people something or create some sort of trap for them. How do you think about that? I mean, you don't want to take away every freedom from people who are getting older, but at the same time, you want to screen away the predators that are out there. How do you think about that when you're talking to your clients? It's a really difficult and frustrating issue. I just had this with a, a friend's mother and she got this email and I was looking at it and I, you know, it looked pretty legit, but then, you know, you look closer and I said, delete this immediately. Don't open emails. Don't open emails from people you don't know. So sort of a couple things you can do. One is just educate yourself. And if it's not you, they'll help educate. You know, I find, you know, trying to educate older adults and I know, you know, family, friends and just say, look, if you don't know this person, if someone calls you and you don't know them, hang up on them. You know, just don't talk to them. Same with emails. If you're concerned at all, just just delete it. Chances are, you know, it's illegitimate. So education, tell people that, you know, that the dangers tell, you know, don't give money to people don't know. If, you, if you're concerned about a charity, you know, ask them for a website, ask them for a phone number. You know, there's other places you can go to check the legitimacy of these things. So just, you know, when in doubt, say no. <laughs> and then there's other things you can do. I mean, there are some now software packages like, you know, I've got one on my phone now that's got a spam filter. And, you know, when my phone rings now, half the time it rings, it comes up, it says, you know, spam. So, you know, put something like that on your phone. You can get programs, you know, that help you monitor credit card accounts and banking accounts. So companies like Eversafe have that software. You can put it on. So there are some things you can do. But again, you just have to be vigilant. What do you think about the situation where a client is afraid to enter into the, the medical system and having a record on file that tips off every conspiracy theory that they may have and creates all sorts of fear? How do you get around that problem? Yeah, it's a difficult problem and a frustrating problem because I think now people are increasingly skeptical about you know large institutions. You know, I would say that, in my opinion, that risk is very low compared to the risk of not seeing a doctor on a regular basis or not getting the medical attention that you need. 
So that's, that's another approach that I try to look at and tell people, try to examine the pros and cons of decisions, especially what are the cons? What if you don't make a certain decision? What are the risks? So I would say, again, being sort of empathetic and understanding, yes, I get it. I see why you're concerned about this. I see, you know, I can understand it, but I think that the, the chances of something happening to you that you're concerned about are much lower than, you know, what's going to happen to you if you get your, you know, cancer diagnosis six months later than it should have been. And you're now at the point where you're going to, you know, you're not going to live much longer. Whereas if you had gone to the doctor previously, they might have been able to save your life. And it goes back to having your documents in place and a power of attorney and so on so that you're surrounding the problem with people so that you're not you have some faith that that you've got some support maybe entering into what can be a pretty Byzantine system. Absolutely. And I and I'm glad you mentioned that because the other advice I give is, you know, I think the two arguably the two most important estate documents are the power of attorney and the healthcare proxy. Because those are the two documents that enable you to get help when making, you know, in one case, important financial decisions, the other case, important healthcare decisions. So that's kind of a bare minimum that all of us should have are those documents that identify people who can help you make financial and healthcare decisions. As you look at the general framework of retirement decisions, estate planning decisions, et cetera, what other useful tips come to mind when you're talking to people to get ready? I would assume maybe one of the first ones is start early while you're at the top of your game. Of course, you know, you know, you almost can't start too early on this. You know, it really is a classic case where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So get the, especially get those two documents, the durable power of attorney and the healthcare proxy you know, get those signed. You know, another one to have a will, a will and what's called a living will. So the living will lays out what types of procedures you want or don't want. Should you have the, the health issues that might require some serious intervention? So get those going and then start early. There is some sort of behavioral psychology around starting early and having a plan because what you can do is say, okay, here's year one. I've got a plan. I've got my documents. I know what I'm going to do. Year two, I've got, you know, you revisit the plan. Okay, that looks good. You know, year three, year four, you revisit it. And then year 12, something bad happens. And you can say, okay, we've been talking about this for 12 years. We have a plan. Now we're going to execute the plan. So it takes away a lot of the the angst that can occur at that time, but it also just provides some comfort knowing you have a plan, and when the time comes, you execute on the plan. To circle back to the overall planning around the assets that are going to fund the retirement as capacities get diminished, what are you seeing these days in a low interest rate environment that is obviously tricky in terms of generating enough income to keep pace? What are you seeing on that front? I think this idea about some sort of guaranteed income, I think the time has come for that. And what I'm what I'm hopeful is that, and that you see some of it now, but more and more companies are recognizing that need. And, and for example, now there's some sort of hybrid products around some sort of, they're kind of like annuities, they're kind of like insurance, but some combination of long-term care insurance, life insurance, and guaranteed income. I frankly think that that's a major part of the future, our future. And I think you've got now you've got a little bit of a stigma against annuities, and I understand that, and rightfully so. But I think that there's so much demand, and there's such a huge, there's going to be such a huge payoff 
for companies who can successfully meet this desire for guaranteed income that you're going to start to see some really interesting products fairly soon. A quick veer off into long-term care. Those policies started out being really good, and then they've become difficult because you have to qualify a bunch of different characteristics in order to get a payout on it. Do you see some improvement coming back into that world? Again, I think so. I mean, my mother had it and she got hers years and years ago and it was a really good deal and it was a deal that later she couldn't have got. But again, I'd like to think that, I mean, if you look at the statistics now, I mean, there's that stat that, you know, 10,000 people turning 65 every day. But the other statistic I saw recently that between now and 2035, the number of people above 65 is supposed to grow six times faster than the number of people under the age of 55, six times faster. And that by 2035, there'll be more people over 65 than there are under 18 for the first time in our history. Wow. So, I mean, to me, the demographics are so overwhelming. And you see this in surveys too, about the demand for some sort of guaranteed income, or at least a demand for some sort of hedge against longevity and high healthcare costs, that I just, I am optimistic that, you know, the smart people are going to figure this out. You know, my, some combination of the asset managers and the life insurance companies, they're going to figure this out. And we're going to have some nice products soon because it, it's so overwhelmingly clear that's what people want. Take us through a little bit about wealthcare solutions. Yeah. So uh, I originally started the company several years ago now, in large part in response to some, you know, personal experience that I had with both dementia and financial exploitation. I mean, my mother had dementia, her mother had dementia, and my mother, you know, recently died of dementia. So I, I'd seen that up close and I, you know, I had other friends whose parents had dementia. And then I also had friends whose parents were scammed for, in two cases, you know, millions of dollars. Some combination of scamming and, you know, there's kind of a fine line between being scammed and just making a bad investment or a bad financial decision. So, I really decided that there wasn't enough being done to protect older adults and their families. Unfortunately, I also have a, a very good friend who's the head of geriatric psychiatry at Mass General Hospital, Dr. Tony Weiner, and he and I decided to do a study. And basically, this study was a small study that was designed to better understand the relationships between aging, cognitive impairment, and financial decision-making. And we came up with some good results, and I think the interesting results, and at that point, it just really became clear to me that, you know, families, nobody, you know, families didn't have it, financial advisors didn't have it, a good way, A, to sort of assess capacity to make decisions, and then, you know, good tools and educational materials designed to protect older adults and their family from these longevity and health-related risks. And I decided to start the company and see if I could make a positive impact. Uh, terrific. Really good stuff. What are some final thoughts? If someone were sort of dropping into this podcast late, what are a couple takeaways that you think are the most important? Yeah, I think, the, you know, the importance, like you mentioned, early preparation is really important. And in your 50s, it's not too early to start preparing, not too early to start getting those legal documents together, not too early to start putting together a team that can help you make financial decisions. And yeah, so I would say, you know, start early put a team together. Don't assume that it's not going to happen to you because unfortunately, you know, we all get sick at some point. So just see it as, you know, sort of a, the normal course of life. And there's just some things you need to do to protect yourself. And so when the time comes again, if you're prepared, you're going to be, you're going to be much happier and healthier because you've done the work in advance. 
Terrific. Chris, how do we stay in touch and find you for our audience members? You can check out our website. It's wealthcareplan.com. So that's wealth with a W-H, W-H-E-A-L-T-H-C-A-R-E, plan.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Chris High. My last name is spelled H-E-Y-E. And I publish a somewhat regular column on these issues, sort of issues at the intersection of health and wealth. So go to my LinkedIn page. It's called The Wealthcare Wire. You can sign up for that. I'm also a regular contributor for the Journal of Financial Planning. So if you're somewhat more academically inclined, you can find some of my works there. Terrific. Thank you for being on. Thanks, Frazier. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.